In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our text is the Old Testament lesson for today, the story of Joseph reconciling to his brothers. We get the very end of this story, as we heard today, but this is actually part of a very tightly woven novella, or short story, or whatever you want, of 13 chapters in Genesis that deals with a very, very dysfunctional family that carries on a few generations. Abraham waits for a long time, gets Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. We'll pick up the story there. Jacob is Joseph's dad. So Esau is a rough outdoorsman, kind of a, a hairy guy, a bit of a Neanderthal. And uh, Jacob is said to be a smooth man. And he was smooth not only in skin, he was... He was, if he'd have been around today, his nickname would have been Slick because he, he was always working the angles of some sort. And he uh, waited for Esau to be famished and he said, hey, I'll trade you this uh, stew for the, uh, for the uh, birthright. Okay, I'm dying anyway, go ahead. So he weaseled Esau out of the birthright. Then he hoodwinked him out of the, the blessing as well. And his mother helped him. This, this is where the dysfunction really sets in. Isaac, the old man, was blind by this time. And his mother said, ooh, put some goat skins on. Then your arms will feel just like Esau. So he came in and, and uh, the old man said, well, you know, the voice sounds like Jacob, but I, I guess the arms are Esau. And he gave him the blessing. Then Esau was murderously mad. And mom said, oh, you better get out of Dodge. Go to my brothers, to Laban's. Go to Uncle Laban's and stay there till Esau cools off. And uh, he did. So he went to Uncle Laban's. And there he fell in love with Uncle Laban's younger daughter, Rachel. This would be his first cousin. So now we know where Uncle Laban's was. It was West Virginia. Uh, <laughs> or Tennessee. So, uh, so he f and, and he wanted to marry her. But okay, so work seven years, you can marry her. Well, then he had the marriage ceremony. They have all the veils. The bride is completely covered. He gets done with the wedding and finds out and takes the veils off. It's not Rachel. It's the older sister, Leah. Oh, well, he said, that's not fair. You cheated me. Yeah, the cheater gets cheated. Don't, don't you kind of love that? What goes around comes around sometimes. And uh, Laban says, oh, that's the way we do it. You know, you get the older sister first and then, then the younger sister. And uh, Rachel was the beautiful sister that he loved. And it, if, if a woman is beautiful, Scripture always mentions something about it. And uh, about Leah, it said, she has nice eyes. Well, that's pretty much, if, if you were going on a blind date today and you ask your friends what she like, and they said, she has a great personality, that's the same thing, okay? As she has nice eyes. So he's married to Leah. Then he gets, works another seven years. He marries Rachel. Good. But the problem is Rachel doesn't have kids. She's got infertility problems. Children are considered the great blessing. They were your form of social security so somebody could take care of you when you were old. She doesn't have any kids. Meanwhile, Leah's cranking them out like a slot machine. She's got a half a dozen. Her maids each have a couple apiece. There's ten kids on that side of the family. Finally, finally, Rachel has a child, Joseph. And Jacob is ecstatic about it. And he loves her and he loves her child. And that's great. But then she has another one, Benjamin, and dies in childbirth. So Benjamin is not all that favored. He killed mom. All right, so Joseph is the one 
who gets all the attention and the favor. And everybody in the family knows it. It's real, real dysfunctional stuff. He, he gives Joseph the famous coat of many colors. It's also known as the prince's coat. And uh, it, it, what it is, it, it's a coat that signifies this kid isn't going to do chores on the farm ever. He's just going to sit around and be Joseph. So the brothers don't like him. Then, because of that, dad favors him. On top of that, Joseph has these grandiose, self-serving dreams. He's kind of an arrogant little twit. And he tells them, uh, oh yeah, by the way, uh, I had a dream of some sheaves of wheat. And your sheaves bowed down to my sheaves. Well, thank you for sharing, Joseph. I, you know, uh, And I saw the constellations, the sun, moon, the stars, and they bowed down to my star. Oh, well, we feel much warmer towards you now that you've shared that, Joseph. So they, they don't like him. They're out tending the herds. Joseph, of course, is flopping around because he's got the prince's coat. You know, he can't do anything. So dad sends him out to check on the boys, see if there's anything they need. He goes out, long way off. They're out following the herds. And they see him come and they go, oh, swell, here comes the dreamer. Let's, let's kill him. We're tired of his arrogance and his favoritism and all. Let's kill him. And the oldest brother, Reuben, says, no, we can't do that. Because um, then his blood will be on our hands. Hey, let's do this. Let's throw him in a pit. And then the first slave caravan that comes along will sell him. That way, his blood won't be on our hands. We'll get rid of him, and we can make a little cash. Win, win, win. This sounds like a great idea. So that's what they do. They sell him. He winds up down. The caravan takes him to Egypt. He is bought at auction by a merchant by the name of Potiphar. And Potiphar sees potential in Joseph. Potiphar thinks he's bright and capable. Potiphar likes Joseph. The problem is Potiphar's wife likes Joseph. Really really likes Joseph, if you know what I mean, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And so she makes advances towards Joseph, and then he rebuffs her, and then she gives the cry that we've heard so much of recently, sexual harassment, and Joseph is thrown into jail. So while he's there, then his dreams start to come in handy a little bit. The Pharaoh's butler and his baker are in there, and they have these dreams, and they say, what does it mean? Joseph said, well, uh, butler, you're, you're going to be restored to your position with the Pharaoh. Baker, you're going to be hanged. Oh, not so good there. And that's exactly what happened. And then uh, later on, the butler is back, restored with Pharaoh. Pharaoh has these dreams. He says, I can't, none of my sorcerers can seem to tell me what they are. Isn't, isn't there anybody here who can interpret dreams? And the butler says, I got the guy. I was in jail with him. It, uh, Joseph the Hebrew, yeah, yeah, get him. So he does, comes in. Well, I had these uh, dream of these seven fat cows and then these seven scrawny cows. And the fat, and the fat cows were eaten up by the scrawny cows. And then I had these seven plump ears of grain and these seven blasted, wasted ears. And the blasted ears ate up the plump ears. What does it mean? Joseph said, it's the same dream, basically. He said, what it is, is you are going to have seven years of bumper crops. You're going to have more grain and food than you know what to do with. And then you're going to have seven years where it's a drought, famine, and nothing, seven lean years. So the task would be to save up the, you know, build more grain storage, Mike, is basically what he's saying, uh, so that you, you know, can store up the grain in the seven good years for the seven lean years. That's, you need to get somebody to do that. And Pharaoh said, well, you appear to be a bright lad. How about you? Why don't you take that over? 
And that's how Joseph became the Secretary of Agriculture and, and was, was, well, really the, the second in command to, um, to the Pharaoh. And so he did that. He did a great job of it. Well, of course, as the story goes on, meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, the boys are running into trouble. It's been two years into the famine, and they've run out of grain. They got some money, so the old man, Jacob, sends the boys down to Egypt. I hear they got grain in Egypt. Goes down there. The, the boys are there. They come in, and of course, Joseph recognizes them right away. But they don't recognize him, probably because he's uh, a lot older, more mature. Maybe he had the weird Egyptian eye makeup. I don't know. But anyway, they don't recognize him. And so they're there. He does a couple of tricks with them. He puts the money back in their sack of grain. Then he takes a silver cup that, and puts it in Benjamin's sack. And then he you know, sends his soldiers to drag him back like as if they've cheated him. And then they're all worried about this. So finally, you know, we, we can say Joseph was great that he forgave his brothers. But let, let's not forget this. He toyed with them first like a cat with a mouse uh, before he forgave them. So then finally he comes and he says, don't you, don't you know who I am? Is my father still alive? I'm Joseph. And then the boys went, Doh! <laughs> because he had the power of life and death, second in command of Pharaoh. And then their shorts got a little tight when they heard that it was actually Joseph that they tried to sell and kill. And he said, no, no, don't, don't worry about that because uh, uh, I know that you sold me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God used it for good. And then he wept and embraced them and everything. So he said, bring, bring everybody down here to the land of Goshen. That's not Goshen, Indiana. That's some, you know, Hartford City. But um, so bring them down here and they did that and then they were in Egypt until, well then eventually they were enslaved for three, four hundred years and that's another story. So anyway, they came down and that was all good. Joseph forgave them. So this is a, a nice, tightly knit story of a family of dysfunction. But there's things to learn. And the first thing that we can learn from this is that when Joseph was in the pits, God was there. God was with him in the pits. And he was with him in, before they sold him, and he was with him in the pits in jail as well. And what that also means is that when we're in the pits, God is always in the pits with us. When you have those times where your job is not secure, your health goes to pot, your kids and grandkids have run wild, you, you know, all those terrible things. God is there in the pits with you. He always is. Secondly, God is not only with you in the pits, but he's going to do something about it. It's, it's nice to have somebody with you, but it's even better if you have somebody with you who's going to do something to help get you out of the pits. And he does that. Joseph says, says it very plainly. You meant it for evil, but God used it for good. So God is always at work trying to turn around things that are evil. Now God doesn't need evil to do good, and God is not the author of anything evil. That comes from somewhere else. That comes from a much lower place than God, anything that is evil. But God is as good as there has ever been at taking evil things and turning them around. I give you for a reference possibly Good Friday, Easter Sunday morning. He had, just when the devil thought that he had killed the Son of God and he had done a great trick, God raised him from the dead and used that for our salvation. doesn't get any better at turning it around than that. St. Paul, who persecuted the church, became, turned around, the apostle to the Gentiles. Things happen like that. And 
we were talking about this this weekend up in Wisconsin, my old college roommate, Greg, and we were saying about what it was like when we graduated from Seminex, the seminary in exile. And we were told, well, if you guys don't knuckle under, there'd be no churches for you. And that pretty much turned out to be true. But then what that meant was that Greg and I, he worked at an auto parts store part-time and had that church out in Colorado. And I worked in building construction and had the church, and then I got into chaplaincy training and chemical dependency training. But eventually, when all of this comes around, even though it was all kind of weird a- at the time, and I was you know, wondering what's going on with my career, eventually all of this stuff kind of comes together a little bit. And now, because of the experience that I have and the training, uh, I felt like this weekend, this past week, I was a blessing to the ELCA and to a congregation and a community in Barron, Wisconsin in particular. And, I, and so when things spiritual happen to us, we, we rarely recognize it at the time it's happening because it's the pits. And we think, well, that can't be God, it's the pits. But later on when we look back, I think that things spiritual are only seen in the rearview mirror. I think we only, by retrospect, look at things that happen and go, oh, okay, I see what God was doing there now. He was using that bad thing, and he was going to lead me to something better. It's not that it wasn't bad. It's bad. It's not good masquerading as evil. It's evil, and it hurts. But I can see how God is turning that around and eventually turn that into something that is useful for me. The third lesson that we have is that it's a good idea to let go of resentments and forgive people. Joseph eventually did, after toying with them a little while, but he did forgive his brothers. And he could have killed them, he could have done anything with them. When we hold on to grudges, we hold on to resentments. If it's in our family, which are the ones that hurt the most, or if it's with others, or even friends or strangers, it still damages us. The old saying is, if, if you seek revenge, dig two graves. One for them and one for you. So it's, it's a lesson in, in, uh, in forgiveness. And finally, God was able to take this very dysfunctional family and use them as the start of a great nation. And he can use our dysfunction and he can do the same thing with us. Amen. Now may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.